Scooby-Doo and the Witch's Ghost came out while I was in elementary school, and I had two best friends at the time, and we were obsessed with Scooby. And we decided we were all going to play a role of one of the hex girls, which was featured in the movie. One was the guitarist, one was a pianist, and one was a drummer. So we all picked a role. I mean, we dressed like them, and every time we were alone, we would pretend like we're playing in a band. We were the hex girls. I've always really loved Scooby-Doo. My favorite has been Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island when they really introduced the real monsters. I would figure, well, if you had a talking dog, why wouldn't you have real monsters instead of guys in masks? We got some work to do now. Scooby-Doo and the Alien Invaders brought together my fascination of sci-fi and mystery into a thrilling adventure. It was always a world I wanted to be a part of and join Scooby and the gang. Pretending you got a sliver You're not fooling me Cause I can see The way you shake and shiver Mary Poppins, practically perfect in every way The Miners Sure, they're like three years old Miners, not Miners If you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth I don't want to kill you What would I do without you? Every time someone says, I do not believe in fairies Somewhere there's a fairy that falls down dead Women who aren't afraid to fight To stand up for our dignity Transference is inevitable, sir Every human being has an impact There are no colored bathrooms in this building simple string of pearls. Well, I don't own pearls. Lord knows you don't pay colors enough to afford pearls. There's one thing the history of evolution has taught us. It's that life will not be contained. Life finds a way. Words are, in my not-so-humble opinion, our most inexhaustible source of magic. Hello, pen biters, and welcome to the best biting season of the year. It's Halloween, I'm Jen, and sitting on the other side of the haunted castle is my beautiful, dear, skeletonized, co-living, and podcast partner, Charlotte. Hi, Charlotte. Jinkies, Jen. Oh, my God. (laughs) Far out. Groovy. Okay, I'm done. (laughs) How are you? I am happy that it's October and that Halloween is around the corner. Unless you're listening to this after Halloween, then I really enjoyed Halloween. It was really awesome last week. I hope everybody else is having a good one because I feel like we didn't really get much of one last year. Aww. Yeah, I, I'm not going anywhere with that. I'm just rambling. Sorry. No, I love it. It should be a happy Halloween this year. Like, dude, you got to soak it in. <laughs> Today, we're going to be talking about a 52-year-old story that even five-year-olds know about, which is pretty impressive. Before we jump into it, I want to say two things. So one, Debbie Downer, the phrase rut row is a popular misconception and is not attributed to Scooby-Doo, but actually came from Astro from the Jetsons. And two, we don't care. (laughs) We think you should say rut row as much as you want. Those are my two caveats to begin. So obviously today we're going to be talking about Scooby-Doo and specifically Scooby-Doo, where are you? It aired for two seasons, from 1969 to 1970. It was produced by Hanna-Barbera for CBS, and then it was directed by Hanna and Barbera, who are two men. 
It's a long-running franchise, obviously. It has an animated series, many movies, merchandise. It's had live action and cartoon. I mean, it's everything. The newest incarnation that I know of was from last year, and it was a movie called Scoob! Exclamation mark. And like I said, it's been going for 52 years. That's a very impressively long life for a series that was created in 69. I don't know of any other off the top of my head, any other cartoon that has that many reincarnations and is able to still stay relevant to kids, which is why archetypes work, right? Absolutely. So can you give us a little bit more information? Thanks for asking. <laughs> like Jen mentioned, we're just going to stick with the original series. That said, let's dive into the history. And Jen already mentioned that CBS had it first and they screened it during the peak hours, which was Saturday morning. The biggest fear for parents and, you know, producers, all of them, was that these cartoons were still too violent, especially for the time Scooby came out in 1969, you know, the 60s era, Vietnam, you have the assassination of Kennedy, MLK, you know, civil rights was still going on, and Nixon's going to be president really soon, so everything's going to go to hell. <laughs> Great. <laughs> so what they really wanted was something less violent, but just as entertaining for their kids. So this concept of solving mystery with a bunch of kids being a gang, not a whole lot of violence. There's more running than there is violence. And by the way, these theories are coming from two articles that I found. The first one is from a blog called Diverse Tech Geek. And the article is, why is Scooby still popular after 50 years? That was written in 2018. And then the other one was from The Atlantic, 2020, The Secret of Scooby-Doo's Enduring Appeal. So that was one of their theories. The second theory we mentioned in our episode about Goosebumps was that it had a perfect combination of supernatural humor and mystery. And the difference is that in Scooby-Doo, it was not that Goosebumps isn't, but it's kid-friendly, it's light, much lighter than Goosebumps, I would say, and of course, formulaic. Again, another enduring quality that we can always rely on. We'll talk about the Scooby formula next. Theory number three, there was practical explanations to the supernatural. There's always some sort of ghost, monster, phenomenon that centers on the mystery. And the idea is that it's not a real monster. There's never a real ghost, as the gang likes to say. And it's true. It was always some sort of criminal behind the mask. Nicely reassuring for kids, for parents to say that, oh, by the end of the show, we can unmask the villain and feel a sense of comeuppance. The criminal is being punished. The crime is being solved. And like I mentioned, it reason number four is that they were younger. They said college age, even though we don't see them go to school, by the way. Mm. There's two males, two females, so it's quite equal. There's a talking dog, which like the talking animal phase was still big in the 60s. There was a big theme of counterculture versus the establishment. The kids themselves dressed like they were kids of the 60s. I mean, Shaggy especially is the embodiment of the pothead, right? And that's no secret. He and Scooby, they're kind of formed into one character because they're always hungry. You know, they got the munchies. And when they have a Scooby snack, they get all energized. I wonder if this is a metaphor for something. <laughs> So it made it quite obvious that these were the counterculture characters and the establishment was all of the villains that were doing these illegal things trying to get away with illegal acts. And then lastly, like you mentioned, there's an archetype for each character. And that transcends especially because everybody would kind of fit them into the slacker, which is Shaggy, the jock, which is Fred, the cheerleader, Daphne, and then the nerd, Velma. 
most kids can identify themselves with one of those characters. Otherwise called Willow, Xander, Buffy, and someone else. I don't know. That That's what like Joss Whedon is known for is his characters are the Scooby gang. And there's a reason it works. I always picture the Breakfast Club solving mysteries. <laughs> they pretend not to we know each other in school but as soon as school's over they're best friends and they're having these huge adventures beautiful formula yeah and because it's so simple in a lot of ways there's a lot of interesting ways to subvert it as well and i, I kind of like that about some of the scooby-doo episodes i've seen where like fred is like i know what we'll do i'm the man let me give you this elaborate plan and it never works and i'm like ha <laughs> Way to go, Fred. Way to go. There's room to evolve them because our archetypes are evolving in our own culture now. Like what was true in the 60s is definitely wasn't true in the 90s and is not true now. Anything about the characters specifically? Like did you identify with any one of them? I mean, I've always liked Velma, but I think that was more of an adult thing. As a kid, I think I liked Shaggy and Scooby because they're the easiest ones to like. I mean, they're silly and they get into hijinks and there's a lot of slapstick comedy with them that I think is funny. But as I got older, yeah, I really like Velma. I like the idea of Velma in the live action film. I really like what they did with that character and how they highlighted the fact that they discount her because she's smart and doesn't look like Daphne or Fred. I'm hoping the reason that they did that in the live action film was that because kids were noticing that Velma was the smarts and sometimes Fred would overshadow her or others wouldn't acknowledge her. That's how I felt. I remember feeling like that, which is like, hey, she's the one that's actually being the Sherlock Holmes of the group. She's piecing it all together. Right. And without her, they could all have their own theories, but they would never solve it within 20 minutes, however long the episode is. Exactly. Or solve it at all. Yeah. I don't know if they would ever be able to solve it by themselves because Shaggy and Scooby are running away or Fred, like you said, probably misses a lot of clues because he's trying to be in charge. And then Daphne is, I don't know. At first she was the damsel in distress and that sort of evolves, but. I feel like if anybody has an idea of what's happening interpersonally with everybody, it's Daphne. Yes. And I think she also plays that trope of like a distraction like she's a manipulator in some ways and that's really handy to have because sometimes they play her dumb but sometimes they play her more like she knows what she's doing. I like that there's a variance there because otherwise it would get boring. Exactly. The article observed that it may be that Fred and Daphne are the oldest of the group because they come from the same status and wealth and they play with it in later series which is that Daphne may be funding <laughs> the gang like they're able to solve mysteries because her family is pretty wealthy oh that's cool i haven't seen those episodes but it's been alluded to and then fred being the son of a mayor or somebody who's politically up there so he has status and then meanwhile you have this genius girl who knows where she's from but she has natural smarts natural talents Shaggy and Scooby are these outcasts that find each other. I was wanting to read this quote from the article. The two are not id and super ego, but something closer to id and then more id. <laughs> totally. Because when one's hungry, yeah. the other's hungry. When one wants to be juvenile during a horrific mystery scene, they stop and they be juvenile. No, yeah, I can see that for sure. Anyway, sorry. I wasn't done with the history, but I wanted to stop and talk about these characters because 
the archetypes are a big deal. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I'm sure we'll come back to them as well as we talk about the episodes. So that was the 60s original era. They kept going because when ABC Network took it over, this was from 1976 through 1991, they made six other shows airing at various times. And they introduce new characters, like Scrappy-Doo comes in there. and Scrappy. Uh, which I hear is not a favorite. <laughs> not a favorite. Mm-mm. And then we come to the 90s, our generation Ooh. of watchers. Because in the 90s, mm-hmm. 1998 specifically, Scooby became exclusive property of Cartoon Network. Woo! <laughs> and they started reruns. And when the reruns became popular, a new generation of kids... They're like, oh, well, what can we do to expedite this? Which is, we can make movies. Specifically, one movie a year. Mm. So this is where we get, if you're a 90s kid, you gotta know this. You get Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island, 1998. Ooh. Scooby-Doo and the Witch's Ghost, 1999. Ooh. Scooby-Doo and the Alien Invaders, which is my brother's favorite, 2000. And then Scooby-Doo and the Cyber Chase, 2001. And then with this era came slight updates because, as everyone knows, change is inevitable. If you don't change, you die. (laughs) And Scooby (laughs) did not die. They adapted for the 90s era. There was less war, obviously. That's always good. Counterculture versus the establishment wasn't as prominent. It is now. So they made the kids a little older. And you can actually see it in what they wear and how they act in these movies. They develop their relationships a little bit. And then the biggest selling point was that the ghosts are real. I remember watching the trailer for Zombie Island. That was the biggest thing that they said by the end was that, and this time, the monsters are real. And we were like, <gasps> <laughs> That was big. Because Scooby-Doo had never had a real... Yeah. Monster. It was always that sense of comeuppance from a criminal that was unmasked. So what happens when you try to unmask a real monster? It's a whole new ball game, all new themes. And these movies were successful because of that. Every one of these monsters in these movies were real. You have the zombies, you have witches, you have real aliens. What do you think about the concept of a real monster? Was Were we ready for that in the 90s? Did it make a difference? I'm honestly surprised it didn't start off that way. I'm really surprised that it started off as unmasking people because for children's literature and children's television, there's a lot of use of metaphor. So it would make sense to me that the monsters were real, but that they were able to like fix whatever the situation was. And it's just kind of an interesting mix of, well, we'll make this fun for kids. So we'll have like monsters and ghosts and things, but they're not going to be real. It's like trying to bridge two different worlds together in my opinion so when it became real monsters i was like yeah (laughs) that feels like how it should be but i can also understand how like making it real monsters as opposed to masked people is that it makes it less connected to real life so maybe there is more of a disconnect with children about their environment but it's a tv show so i mean it's not an educational show so maybe that's okay and talking out loud about it helps too because now that you say that i'm like oh my gosh you're right (laughs) but after what i've read about it it makes sense that both are products of their time Hmm. during wartime the supernatural world is is confusing and maybe antagonistic especially when Hmm. 
your own society is sort of butting heads. If it's counterculture versus establishment, that's a big deal. Right. But it felt like in the 90s, magic was helpful. It was the ally. And now we can understand that world. We have a sense of security. We know there's no such thing as zombies. But we're ready to see what the metaphor is, if they are real zombies in this universe. That's my theory. I don't know if at that point that meant that all the monsters are real or some monsters were real. I mean, ideally, I think it wouldn't be cool to have both, to still have occasional unmaskings and to still have real monsters. That would be a really good mix of things. And then you really have a lot of freedom. I think you're right. The original formula came back, which is that most of them were still criminals that were masked. But they weren't afraid to throw in the occasional real ghost and real phenomena. Suddenly that universe was okay to have both. I think that's cool. But you have to take a risk to see if you can revive a show. I'm saying that not to you and not to the people listening, but to the television studios. Because, <laughs> hello, that's how you make good TV. I'm sorry, but you have to take risks once in a while. And they just don't aren't willing to do that right now. But a lot of really amazing shows were built on... We don't know if this is going to work, but we're going to try it. And they became huge successes. The Walking Dead, even Murder, She Wrote, like they planned on doing one season because they didn't think people would be into an older woman solving crime. And everybody loved it. And so they did 12 seasons of that show. With The Walking Dead, AMC was going to close. They couldn't make enough money to stay open. This was their like last chance. So they put everything they had into The Walking Dead. And I mean, it's made them millions and millions of dollars so i know that there's probably a lot that aren't successful by doing something different but i still think it's worth the risk that's a whole sidebar sorry i just went on a rant (laughs) beautiful sidebar and then to wrap up the history sorry which is the live action films in 2002 again that high of a new content new generation was still going so they're like okay what else can we do live action what Up until now, it's been a cartoon, so let's try real actors. And I think Freddie Prince Jr. being Fred and then Sarah Michelle Gellar being Daphne was a big selling point on that. Buffy. Plus, they were married. I I think Sarah Michelle Gellar wanted to play that role. I mean, she did. She wanted to play that role in Buffy. She auditioned to be Cordelia, who's another character in it. But Joss Whedon was like, no, you're going to be the the alpha. You're going to be the main character. So I I would imagine that she had a lot of fun playing the character that she originally auditioned for in a different circumstance. You know what I mean? Oh, I love it. Freddie Prince Jr. does, and his name is Freddie. (laughs) Get it, Fred. (laughs) He didn't play the masculine intellect, which is somehow integrated into Fred's character earlier on. It's the same kind of character, except you know he's flawed. He's not treating Velma right. He probably isn't treating Daphne right at the beginning. So there's somewhere for him to go. Really good choice because Fred is so easy to hate for me. Like if they had picked a more toxic masculine man, the archetype of the jock, that would have been really awful. But Freddie Prince is so like, he's so cute. He doesn't have that aggressive energy. Right. And that makes a big difference in a movie like that in a show like Velma was great. I loved Velma in it. And Shaggy too. They all did a great job. 
And I think because this was live action, it was 2002, they knew the 90s kids were following them. So I think they were willing to take the risk of being much more mature than it's ever been. Right. They made it clear it was a college age and they made it more sexualized and Mm -hmm. the humor became that like sometimes inappropriate humor. Mm -hmm. But it was okay because all of these kids had already grown up. And they wanted to see what the gang looked like with all of those grown-up elements. You know, honestly, that movie gets a lot of shit, but so many people love it. Like, it's fun. I do think that they were very successful at what they were trying to do. Maybe not the second one, but the first one is really enjoyable. So we get the two live action there, though, in the early 2000s. I'm sure they'll do another one at some point. Yeah, which actually brings me to my next point. That was not the last live action of Scooby-Doo. Oh. 2002 through 2006, a new era of reruns started. So again, a new generation. What is that? Generation Z? Z? Generation Z is now the new kids on the block. Mm. So with their generation came a new round of live action. I don't know anybody in that cast, and I didn't even write their names down. But the movies are Scooby-Doo, The Mystery Begins. That was the first one, 2009. Apparently that one was successful enough to have a second and then a third, a third which was dedicated Mm. to Daphne and Velma's story, which was interesting. Yeah, Directed by a female, so might be worth it. Yeah, that's going to be on my list. And then like you said last year, the latest one was Scoob. So to conclude the history, I really wanted to read this awesome quote from Washington Post. The summary of the message of Scooby-Doo. Kids should meddle. Dogs are sweet. Life is groovy. And if something scares you, you should confront it. Very nice. That's a really good message to kids, I think. To adults as well. Yeah. Do you want to tell us about the formula some more? Are we ready? Write this down. Because (laughs) it'll endure forever. So, number one... (laughs) This is like a how-to. I'm going to jump into a how-to guide here. Okay, cool. Identify paranormal mystery and meet your suspects. Okay. Step two, split into teams and either run from monsters or find some clues. Okay. Step number three, make a plan to capture the monster. Okay. Step number four, watch plan. Go not to plan. (laughs) Step five. Watch Scooby and Shaggy's sheer luck capture the monster. Hmm. Step six, unmask villain and reveal truth behind the elaborate hoax. Nice. And then to wrap it all up, you got to hear the famous villain's last line, right? Which is, Hmm. I would have gotten away with it too if it weren't for your meddling kids and your (laughs) dog. Scooby would say, and the kids would be, ha, 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 ha. Is that how they would be? That's good stuff. Exactly. Does that sound right? Does that sound like the formula for the episodes we've seen and the movies we've watched? Yeah. And even just like the live action film, it's it's all the same stuff. And I think these are really good things to keep in mind when you watch the show for like an analysis purposes. But having such a strict formula and not in a strict as in a restrictive way, but strict as in it's a simple thing that you stick to offers a lot of familiarity absolutely so if you like the formula that's why i love it it makes you more primed to like the episodes because you're going to have that same sort of like run every time and it's a satisfying run because there's like the sense of what everybody likes which is that things aren't mysterious anymore that we've 
gone from the unknown to the known. So why don't we talk then about two episodes? One that I think surprised us at being surprisingly good, and the other one which was actually really good. Not that they aren't good, but these are very old. So I don't really go in with lots of like confidence that I'm going to enjoy it, but for the most part, these two episodes really delivered. So the first episode is A Night of Fright is No Delight. Night of Fright is No Delight. A Night of Fright is No Delight. Came out in 1970. It was season one, episode 16. I'm going to tell you the description of the story, and then we'll talk about more specific things. Uh, Scooby-Doo is called for a reading of the will from an eccentric millionaire, Colonel Sanders. Yes, Colonel Sanders, <laughs> who leaves $1 million to four relatives and Scooby for saving his life a few years beforehand. The lawyer who's reading the will is going to tell you the rest of the premise of the episode, and then I'll tell you how it ends. Colonel Sanders was a bit hard. And his only instructions were to play this record for you. Greetings, y'all. Cousin Simple. Nephew Normal. Sweet Cousin Maldehyde. Cousin Slicker. And my old friend Scooby-Doo. Now that you're all here, might as well get down to the nitty-gritty of inheriting my fortune. You're going to receive an equal share of the million dollars, Biden, you spend tonight here in the old family mansion. That shouldn't be too hard. The house is haunted. Huh? Haunted? Yes, haunted. And those of you that don't stay, his share of the fortune will go to the others. Now, good night and pleasant dreams, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. So that's basically the premise, and the cousins and Scooby and the gang are there to spend the night. So after a series of hijinks and over-the-top sound effects, the cousins have all disappeared, and when Scooby and the gang are looking around, they run into these, I think they call them ghouls, but they're basically ghosts. And in the end, the lawyers, Creeps and Crawls are their names, uh, were trying to scare everyone away to collect the fortune. Since Scooby-Doo is the last one there, he inherits the money. But it's Confederate money, which led me down a rabbit hole of information. Confederate money, just so everybody knows, is only valuable to collectors, and it's not a legal tender, but it was created by the Confederacy right before the Civil War and was supposed to be worth a lot of money once the war was over or once the war was won. They were basically like IOU slips, but they were supposed to be very valuable as soon as they won the war, which, of course, they did. <laughs> That was the show, but I also want to add that this is the highest rated episode of the original series on IMDb for whatever that's worth. It's a fun one, I think. It's a very trope-heavy episode, but I guess a lot of Scooby-Doo episodes are in a way. Do you want to talk to us about that? They're there because of Scooby. He's inheriting the challenges to spend the night. It's very like Knives Out or Clue, if you've ever seen any of those. Yeah something valuable is hidden in the spooky house ready go yeah <laughs> so there's the mystery you know your suspects you have five cousins you have the butler guy who's there you have the lawyers a plethora of suspects which is maybe more exciting for kids because 
the surprise criminal, mm. the person you did not think it was going to be, at least, again, at the time, because the unmasking of somebody who you didn't expect was more new. So it was fun to guess. I think it was Colonel Sanders. Uh, that was my prediction when we first watched it. He set this up to see who would, maybe because he's an eccentric, like they said, to see who could, like, survive his, like, crazy castle that he created. And he would pop up in the end and be like, uh-huh, it's me. You are successful, so you get to own the chocolate factory with me. <laughs> That's not what happened, but that was my prediction. Which could have been a real thing. I wouldn't have been surprised if it was. Yeah. I was kind of hoping it would be one of the cousins, but mm. we didn't focus on them. So by the end, I'm like, oh, it can't be one of them. Yeah, They've all disappeared. But this next part I don't remember as well, which is that they did get separated. Scooby at one point got separated. And I don't remember what the teams ended up being, but I'm sure Scooby and Shaggy were one team. The big plan, which again gets more elaborate as the shows continue, which is that Fred usually invents something or thinks of something that's maybe excessive. But in this episode, he's using a fan, he's using soap and a washer because the idea is to have the ghouls come in front of the fan, get blown back and then trapped into this dryer or washer. I'm not sure which one it is. That's the plan. And everybody has a role and they do it. But Shaggy accidentally comes out too soon and he's the one that gets blown back into the washer. I think Scooby's there too. So now it's like, oh shoot, that didn't work. The fan is too strong and it actually takes the washer. Science is not a big deal in this one apparently. It is not. <laughs> so they take a ride in the washer and they accidentally run into the ghouls. The sheer luck of Scooby and Shaggy are the ones that incapacitate the villains. So there's the formula. I guess the cousins never come back. That was never clear, was it? No, that happens a lot in the show also. There's like threads that don't get tied up at right. the end, but it doesn't really matter because <laughs> it's so short. There's a couple really obvious themes and tropes. Like you have the eccentric mogul and his fortune, obviously a haunted castle, a reading of a will. Then you have like the ghost slash ghouls. Like there's a lot of very stereotypical spooky elements you could probably find another episode with those same four. It's a very popular one for a reason. Oh, what is that called? Closed circle, I think is what it's called. One setting and everybody is contained in that one setting. And there's not a whole lot of outside of the setting. It's all right there in a closed circle. And that's a pretty popular mystery form. You can do so much by limiting yourself to what you can do. It's a really fun way to get creative about things. And that's why in Clue, you have like part of the jokes are like running around constantly, kind of like Scooby-Doo. There's a shit ton of running around. I would never make it. I would be so out of breath. <laughs> constantly running. And it's a high energy show, so that makes sense too for kids. So for the second episode, we watched Go Away Ghost Ship, season one, episode 14, and this came out in 1969. So this was a couple episodes before the one we just talked about, which is surprising because I do think they probably got better as they got later in the season. But this one really stuck out, I think, for both of us. Yeah, this one's fun because one of the things that Scooby-Doo does really well, which is take legends and folklore and stories that are familiar to an entire culture and play with it. So in this one, it's a familiar name. The legendary ghost pirate Redbeard is reported to have stolen a freight in order to raid ships for their cargo. 
I think the original legend was actually a pair of brothers. Mm. The Italian name for Redbeard is Barbosa, like from Pirates of the Caribbean. So I think he's supposed to be the famous Redbeard pirate. Interesting. Yeah, so there's a bit of information there. So, Mystery Inc. visits the freight owner, who is Mr. Magnus, who says Redbeard is supposedly seeking revenge. When Velma and Fred's plan to record the ghost at sea fails... They end up trapped on Redbeard's ship where they confront the ghost and his two ghost lackeys. So the gang splits into teams because that's what they do. Velma, Daphne, and Fred are locked into a cabin. Scooby and Shaggy end up cooking an inedible meal for Redbeard in order to escape. The ship comes into a cove. Velma, Daphne, and Fred escape Redbeard and the gang comes back together. And in there they confront Redbeard and his two lackeys again. And there's not really a plan executed here, but Scooby accidentally incapacitates them using an egg beater, a jackhammer, and lots of running and screaming. Hmm. Then Velma unmasks the villain, who ends up being Mr. Magnus, who is masquerading as Redbeard in order to steal his own ship and then sell stolen cargo. It's very much a white-collar crime. Interesting. So my summary kind of has that formula in it, but just to reiterate, there's a mysterious ghost pirate at sea. The suspects are Mr. Magnus, and we do mean his butler, so that could be a possible second suspect. It's always the butler. I think Shaggy even says, like, I thought it was always the butler who did it. (laughs) And the clues along the way are like tubs of dry ice for fog, Mm -hmm. a cargo delivery schedule, which Shaggy puts on in order to trick the lackeys into thinking he's the captain. And then the plan is actually executed at the beginning. They want to record with these tapes because Velma brings out like this little video cassette thing. And of course that doesn't work because the ship like comes at them and they're capsized. So what actually happens is that they get stuck on the ship, closed circle. Mm-hmm. They have to find a way out and they have to incapacitate the villains, which Shaggy and Scooby do inadvertently yet again. There's no way to do it on purpose. It has to be inadvertent. Absolutely. And which is, I think, part of the humor, right? Which is if it went to plan, it would be somewhat boring. And it'd be over really quick. Yes. You get pirates this time, pirate ghosts. Lots of evil laughing. It's very good. (laughs) The ghost pirate ship is a big trope, right? You have legends like the Flying Dutchman. An idea of a ghost crew is always enticing because you don't ever think that the dead could sail a ship. If you are a living crew and you approach a dead ship, what will happen to you? And there's just something so haunting and familiar, which is odd, about a ship that's been possibly lost and has now been lost for so long that they're like ghosts and they're still out there looking for whatever it is they're looking for, treasure or whatever. That's used in so many different variations because it feels very close to reality. I don't know how to describe it. It's very eerie and very uncanny. And it's just one of those things that has a lot of oomph behind it. I don't know how else to describe it. Archetype, symbolism, that shadow part of us that we don't quite understand I mean, for me, it comes out in pirate tales. It really does. Like the first time I read Treasure Island, I didn't know why I was connecting with all of this stuff because I've never been to sea. I've never been on a ship. I've never met a sailor. You know, all of these things. But it didn't matter. The essence of all of it was that there was a mystery out in the middle of nowhere, the possibility of death, but discovery and treasure, the treasure being not only new knowledge, but real gold from different 
areas of the world, like even a pirate's treasure, if you think about that symbolism, a collection of mm -hmm. the world within a box, a chest. And in this case, it was stolen cargo. He was making a profit out of it. So I, for him, that was a big deal. They do play around with some phrases, some pirate phrases, like when they confront the chest that will let them into the cove. Come on, let's find out what's in the chest. Open it up. <laughs> what's the password, you swabs? <laughs> Zoinks, a talking pirate skull. Everybody relax. It's only a mini microphone and speaker. What's it mean by give the password? I don't know. Let's give it a try. Uh, 16 men on a pirate's chest? Let's see. Yo ho ho, blow the man down? How about yum 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 and a liverwurst a la mode? <laughs> Whoa! What a password! Oh my god. There's a lot of things in this episode that's never explained. Mm. I think that phrase is one of them. Like, what makes Shaggy mm -hmm. say that other than his hunger? I will say it's one of my favorite tropes in fan fiction is pirate versions of everything. Almost every fandom has their own version of pirates and it can be a really fun thing to utilize. So you get to see all these like common themes that you get with like Redbeard, for instance, that like captain type and the idea of pirates and then of course the glorification of pirates but it's interesting to see it played out in all these these different universes it's all kind of generally the same i mean you can only do so much with a pirate because that's what they are they're pirates you know yeah that's when counterculture gets too crazy mm. they don't want to be a part of the world anymore i think that's when pirates are born in whatever mm. universe era wherever you are there's always going to be a pirate because they take it to the extreme no law no order interesting so one of the things that we talked about for these episodes to make it a little extra fun for us was to do a modern twist something that we in particular would want to see maybe or that would be interesting for an audience now my new idea for this episode if it was played today is i would want the legend to be of ching shi the most famous female pirate in history. She was very much like a businesswoman, as well as being tough and authoritative with her all-male crews. Mm. And the ghost ship would be reported to have sunk an entire freight crew, and everybody thinks that the crew was drowned. They're gone. I know it's a little bit more dark than Scooby-Doo normally is, but let's just say that's what the theory is. So when the mystery gang tries to confront the ghost ship, the same thing happens, which is that they're capsized and forced to board. But this time, there's at least 10 pirate ghosts, and they spot particularly Shaggy and Fred on the poop deck, and they're captured right away. So Velma and Daphne, who board on a different part of the ship, find pirate clothes and pose as ghosts while they try to figure out how to help Shaggy and Fred. They are the ones that find the dry ice, cargo logs, etc. When the ship docks at the cove, Ching and two lackeys disembark, while Velma and Daphne volunteer as prison guards, and they rescue and they free Fred and Shaggy from the brig. Meanwhile, Scooby is stuck in the galley, and he poses as a cook. After overstuffing himself, he's able to incapacitate the crew by adding a sleeping ingredient to their meal. The gang then disembarks on the cove, where the same events play out, they find a treasure chest that leads them into a cargo storage, and they confront the three remaining ghosts. Daphne and Fred create a plan that captures the two lackeys, 
while Scooby and Shaggy act as a diversion, while Velma uses dry ice to trap Ching in a cargo box. Ching turns out to be the captain of the supposedly sunken ship, and the ghosts are her crew who were trying to sell stolen cargo. Hmm. So, like I said at the beginning, my theory is that this ship would set to have been sunk and all of the crew gone. Mm. So it's actually that crew that came together, made this plan to be a ghost ship Mm. with Ching as the masquerading ghost. I can totally see that being an episode. Yeah. So what about you? Do you have a scenario, a modern twist for this episode? Yeah, I went, well, I thought I went two different directions, but I think they're both the same idea, but two different alterations of the same idea so in my modern twist it would be real they would be real pirate ghosts and i have two versions so one version is that it's maybe kind of obvious but it's just an all-female crew and that redbeard is a woman and they like would have their own mythos um or my second idea which i think is kind of fun is that somehow accidentally Velma becomes the head pirate, becomes the pirate queen, because she, like, did something or touched something or she, like, wore something that she wasn't supposed to. Oh, cool. And so (laughs) the crew is, like, basically trying to to follow her lead now and she doesn't want to be the pirate queen. And then maybe, like, the actual pirate queen comes along and is trying to fight Velma. I don't know. (laughs) I just had this idea of Velma becoming the pirate queen and her being like, I, that's not what, no. And they're like, yes, you are a queen. Oh my God. That's the one you need to sell. You need to pitch. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Because then you have character development of the gang because there's reasons to play with how do the mystery ink react to her being in charge? Yeah. Does she like the power? Does she get to caught up in it or is she scared about it oh my god that's right excellent i love it i do want to mention that part of the reason that we ended up picking this is because of one of our longest listeners and he absolutely loves scooby-doo and he's always been a really huge support to the podcast which we very much appreciate so just want to say thank you jesse for sticking out with us and I hope that you enjoyed this episode. Halloween. Gotta love it. Ghosts, ghouls, skulls, cemeteries. Go enjoy your Halloween season. I went to the dollar store yesterday. It's October 16th today, and it was full of Christmas decorations. And I was like, what happened? That's <laughs> what year is it? Wrong. Yeah. I I don't know. It was very strange. I was like, I don't understand why there's Christmas stuff and no Halloween stuff left when it's (laughs) not even (laughs) mid-October. God. So enjoy it while you can, apparently. I would leave my house decorated like Halloween year-round if that were acceptable. So we want to thank all of our generous pen biters. We have two new pen biters this month, which is very exciting. So we want to thank Jesse, Jeanette, JR, and Thunderfly. Thank you all very much for your support. We very much appreciate it. If you haven't already, please make sure to send us your idea for an episode because we would like to hear that. So that's at bitethepen at gmail.com. And if you would like to support us, you can go to patreon.com slash bite the pen. Or if you want to just listen to some episodes, we're on pretty much all of the apps. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook. Everything is at bite the pen. If you would like to rate and review us, that would be super helpful. You can do that on the iTunes store. And 
Again, email if you want to email us, bitethepen at gmail.com, or you can go to our website, www.bitethepen.com. Like, dude, it's far out. (laughs) Thank you. So the ending quote is from the Atlantic article, and it was written by someone named John Paul Steele, and he has the following to conclude about Scooby-Doo. We watch, and our kids watch, and eventually their kids will watch. Four so-called teenagers and their great Dane roam the countryside, pulling the mask off some fraudulent phantom or counterfeit creeper. And fear not, they won't ever really leave. <laughs>